When we left off last week, we, in the story of Noah, we found that God had indeed followed through on his promise to destroy the earth and every living thing. And so God had sent the floodwaters to the earth. Before that happened, he had made sure that Noah and his family and the animals were safely in the ark, and God shut the door. And we ended last week by talking about the idea that God himself shut the door. That there came a point where God, even though he was patient and even though he didn't want anyone to perish, there came a time when God said, that's all. And as we said last week, that season of grace had ended. And so when God closed the door, those who were in the ark were safe. Those outside the ark were destroyed. And the parallel to that is there will come a time, whether it is through our death or whether it is through Christ coming again, that, that, that another season of grace will end. And it's permanent and it's irreversible. And so we want to make sure that when that time comes, that we have done what Christ wants us to do. And that's to come to him in repentance and ask his forgiveness and to walk in a new way of life and become his child. That's what he wants from us. And so the challenge for us is to do it before that door is closed again. When we start today, we want to just go back to the very end of Genesis chapter 7. In verse 24, this is how chapter 7 ends. It says, The floodwaters, or the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Now, we don't really know what Noah and his family and the animals did on the ark during the time of the flood. I suppose if you go see the movie Noah that's coming out soon, maybe they'll tell us. I don't know, maybe they have some special insight. But we're not told actually what happens. Yeah, you can use your imagination. We're also not told exactly the details of what happened to those who were on the outside of the ark, except the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. When we get to chapter 8, it's a reminder that God has not forgotten Noah and his family and the animals while they're on the ark during this long period. Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth, At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark. Here's a question. We read last week that the floodwaters covered the earth and the highest peak, 22 feet above the highest peak. That's a lot of water. So as the floodwaters receded, where did the water go? It's a lot of water. Where did it go? Well, I will say that the Bible doesn't talk as much about where it went as to who made it go. And that's God. But I want you to look at a couple of things. Uh, There's a great similarity. In Genesis chapter 1, When God is creating the earth out of the chaos, we read this in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. It's not going to be on your screen, but it says that darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Some translations say that the Spirit of God 
was moving upon the waters. Look at the similarity in verse 1 that we just read. It says that he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. The same God, the same Spirit of God that was hovering over the waters at the creation of the world is the same God that sends the wind of His Spirit to hover over the flood waters. It's the same God doing the same work. And this God, who called everything into being, also set boundaries. There's an interesting psalm, Psalm 104, beginning in verse 6. It says this, and think about the flood as we read this. It says, You clothed the earth, with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. At your command, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, it hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. Then you set a firm boundary for the seas so that they would never again cover the earth. Biblical scholars debate about whether that passage is talking about the actual flood or whether it's talking about the creation of the world in day three of that creation. But what does it matter? If you think about it, whether it's talking about the actual creation of the world or whether it's talking about the receding floodwaters, don't you think that the God who did it the one time could make it happen again? That if God could set the boundaries one time, certainly God could set the boundaries another time. So to me, regardless of what it's talking about, it's, it's not really worth arguing the point. Because God can do it again. Whatever God did at creation, God can do it again. Now, where'd the waters go? They're still here. They're still here. Did you know that 70%, or over 70, I think, of the globe is covered in water? So where do the waters go? If God could change the topography of the earth at creation to set the waters in their boundaries, could not God also, after the flood, change the topography of the earth as the waters receded? Where did the waters go? If you read the Bible account, it seems very logical to think that the water retreated into the deep ocean basins. So, when people say, where did the flood water go? It's very easy. Show them a picture of the ocean. Take them to the sea. It's still here. Verse 7. And he sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. We all know, the, if you know the story of Noah well, you know that Noah sent out a, a dove, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But did you know that Noah sent out actually two birds? The first one was a raven, and the, and the Bible says that the raven flew back and forth. Now, I don't really think that the raven went out and just flew for 21 straight days and, and never rested or never found anything to eat. Really what it means here is that the raven would go out, but the raven would come back and not come back into the ark, but would actually rest on the ark. And so you wonder, well, what did the raven eat? Actually, if you think about the flood, I'm not sure we want to go there and talk really about what the raven ate, because if you know what ravens eat, um, it's not a very pretty picture. Verse 8, Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground but the dove could not uh, the, but the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth so it returned to Noah in the ark he reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark he waited 7 more days and again sent out the dove from the ark when the dove returned to him in the evening 
There in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Verse 13. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. It's interesting to note that in verse 13, Noah looks out and he perceives that the ground is dry, which makes sense. If you've been on a boat and you look out and all you see is water, 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 and then all of a sudden you see ground, you're going to say, man, we have dry ground. But if you read the scripture in in verses 14 and 16, you find that, that God waited actually almost two months before he let them come out. That even though Noah perceived the ground to be dry, God realized it wasn't safe yet. So it's about another couple of months before he lets them come out. A little side lesson here is that a lot of times we perceive things to be one way. And so we strike out on our own. And what happens is we make mistakes that we regret. And we wish we had waited for God's leading and God's direction. But see, God here says, okay, Noah, you perceive that it's dry. It's not safe yet. Stick around in the ark for a while. When it's safe, I'll tell you to come out. And God gives us the same kind of leading in our lives. It was one year from the time that Noah entered the ark to the time that he left. So that's a long time to be on the ark, and you can imagine he's anxious to get off. Verse 17, God says, Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds. Everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. You might say, well, what did they eat and how did they do this and how did these animals get to this part and how did all this happen? And, and there's some really interesting stuff on a website called Answers in Genesis. If you really want to dig and answer those questions, we just don't have time to get in all of that today. But here's the point of this particular part for me, is the idea that, remember when we started this way back, when God had decided that he was going to destroy the earth because of the evil. God had decided that he was going to save because of his righteousness, Noah and his family. And we talked about Noah's three sons. And Noah's three sons are not just three names that appear in the sixth chapter of Genesis. Noah's three sons actually have a part in God's plan to repopulate the earth when all is said and done. So even before God has destroyed the earth, God has a plan to repopulate the earth after it's destroyed. The same thing with the animals. God has a plan to bring animals into the ark to save them so that when the destruction is done... He can repopulate the earth as well. And it's just this great idea that God is not in the destroying business. God is in the creating business. And that God had this wonderful plan, this wonderful plan to restore the earth even before he destroyed it. And the part that just speaks to me in this particular part of the passage is the idea of of here it is. This is, is God putting that plan that he had planned even before the flood into work of repopulating the earth. Verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord 
and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Well, Noah didn't come out and kiss the ground. There's a, a great book by a, a guy named Louis Grizzard. Uh, as being a Georgian, it's one of my favorite books. And the title of the book is, If I Ever Get Back to Georgia, I'm Going to Nail My Feet to the Ground. We hear about people doing that. They've been away, and when they get back to where they feel comfortable, then, then it's that idea of, I'm going to set my feet here. Some people say, I'm going to kiss the ground. You get on dry land, you've been in the sea, I'm going to kiss the ground, I'm so glad I'm back. Noah doesn't do that. Uh, Noah doesn't, doesn't worship the place, Noah doesn't worship the ground. Noah worships the God that saved him through all of this. And the first thing that Noah does when he gets back on dry ground is he offers a sacrifice, a thanksgiving to God. The idea that he wants to start this new creation, not on his own, but in thanks to God and in the symbol of starting it out on the right foot. That he's doing this, uh, and I think that it's, it's, it's really neat. One of my favorite parts of this whole story is in verse 21. It says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. It says that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice. It's a reminder of Ephesians chapter 2 where it talks about Christ and, and the writer of Ephesians says that Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's that same idea that the God is pleased. God is pleased with the sacrifice. But then because of that, he makes a promise, and he says, I'll never again destroy the earth by a flood. And he says that as long as the earth endures, there will be seasons, there will be planting, there will be harvesting, there will be day, there will be night. And then, really, the part that gets to me here is the idea that God makes this promise never to destroy the earth again with a flood when he knows, and he even says it, he says, even though... Every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. He makes this promise, and it's not based on man's worthiness. It's based on his love, and it's based on his grace, because he knows that sin is still going to be around. But God makes the promise anyway, even knowing that the evil will continue. Well, this is the point in the story where, if we leave it here, then, as we talked about last week, we've taken it from a children's story now to an adult story with a bunch of facts. So, so what is the primary lesson here? What, what is it that, that, that I think you need to take away from this today? It, it's found, actually, in verses 11 and 12. I said we'd come back to it. God had already sent out, or Noah had already sent out a dove first time, and it came back quickly because water was over the earth. But then he sends out a dove the second time. And it says in verse 11, when the dove returned to him, after going out the second time, when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time, it did not return to him. 
The symbol of the dove and the olive branch. What is it the international symbol for? Peace. Everybody, in, in in any time you, you see a, a commentator on TV talking about some kind of peace initiative from some country, he's always talking about, you know, they held out the olive branch. Uh, that's the sort of the analogy that they use. And the idea that, that the dove and the olive branch are the symbol uh, of peace. But there's a professor at the, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem that puts a different spin on it. Because he says that even though that the dove can be a symbol of peace, that for him here in this story, that the dove is not a symbol of peace, but the dove is a symbol of freedom. And here's why he says this. He says because the, the dove is not going out searching for food. The dove is not going out looking for a gift to bring back to Noah. The dove is looking for freedom. And the first time it goes out, there is no freedom. It's all water. So he returns. And the second time he goes out, he brings back this little olive leaf or olive branch. And he brings it back as as a sign to Noah that freedom is out there. And the third time he goes out, he doesn't return. He's not going in search of food. He's not really even going in search of dry land, so to speak. But he's going in search of freedom. He doesn't come back and say, look, Noah, I brought you some olive leaves. No, it's, Noah, I'm about to be free. And the third time, when he doesn't return, he has found his freedom. It's a great analogy, the, the dove and the freedom. Because I think for us, we're all in some areas of our lives looking for freedom. It's something that, that we crave. It's something that, that some people find and, and some don't ever seem to find the, the freedom that they're looking for. But it, but it took the dove three trips out, but the dove finally found freedom. And there was some perseverance there. I know Noah let it out, and I know a God let it, and I, I know all of that stuff. But it, it's the idea that, that, that we may not find it when we first start seeking it, but it's there. And I think we're all looking for freedom. Some of us are looking for freedom from sin. Some of us are looking for freedom from addiction. Some of us are looking for freedom from pain, some from grief. I mentioned guilt jokingly a little bit ago, but still a lot of people are looking for freedom from guilt that they have in their lives. There are all sorts of things that people want to find freedom from, things that are holding them captive in their lives. And that's one part of freedom. Certainly in dealing with the things that are holding us captive, but a lot of times what we don't realize is that being set free from things should lead us to be set free to do things. And we never quite think about that part. I just want to be free. I want to be free from this. You know, this addiction has been holding me down forever. I just want to be free from it. This guilt that I've been holding inside of me, I just want to be free from it. And that's well and good. But what happens when you are set free? You're set free for something. Jesus said that he came that that we might have life, an abundant life. 
And when we come into a relationship with Christ, we can be set free from whatever is holding us captive. But in Christ, we are not just set free from something. We are set free to something. And that to something is to live the life that Christ wants us to live. Christ wants us to live a life where we're happy. Believe it or not, Christians can be happy. Not all of us walk around with sad faces. We're set free from something to something. We are set free to be creative with the abilities and the talents that God has given us. We are set free to be open and to be honest with other people. We're set free for so much. And Christ wants so much for us to know that we are not just delivered from, but that we're delivered to something. And if Christ sets us free, then we are free indeed. But, that's the dove. What about the olive branch? Well, the olive branch signals a new beginning. And when the dove returned with the olive branch, what it was a sign to Noah for was that this plan... This plan that, that God had from the very start, this plan to repopulate the earth, is about to begin. You see, Noah and his family and the animals were saved from the flood, but they were saved to something. And that something that they were saved to is a new beginning, a new beginning that God had planned. We too are offered a new beginning. For 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. And all this is, from, is a gift from God. He brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It says here, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Literally, it says, if anyone is in Christ, a fresh start is made. A fresh start is made. Not a fresh start can be made, a fresh start should be made, if you are in Christ, the promise is, a fresh start is, it's happening, it's happened, it is, it's going on. A fresh start is made. And for people who are, are, are burdened with, with all sorts of things in their lives, this is great news. You know, for, for people who, th who thought that they didn't have any hope in their lives, for people who thought they had come to the end of whatever it was they were, were at the end of, whether it was a rope or at the bottom of a pit or wherever they are, 
That's good news, that we get a fresh start. For people who keep hitting dead ends, there's a fresh start. For people who are burdened with sin and grief and guilt and, and all of these things, God says, look, there's a fresh start through a relationship with Christ. But what is this fresh start? Well, it's not being reformed. You know, you know how we say people, well, gee, old John's reformed. <laughs> Which the implication is, John has done something different in his life. He might have changed on the outside, but doesn't necessarily mean he's changed on the inside. It doesn't mean that we have been rehabilitated. We've gone through the program. Now we're rehabilitated. That's not what it means. Doesn't mean that we are re-educated. Doesn't mean that we know more than we did before. No, it means you are new, brand new. Not a refurbished old person. You are brand new. And with that brand new also comes a brand new perspective on everything. A new perspective on life. A new perspective on your job. A new perspective on your spouse. A new perspective on your family. A new perspective on your church. It's also a new way of living. That you don't live like you used to. Because if you say, well, I've come to Christ, but you're still living the old way, you, you really haven't come. Because if you genuinely come to Christ, the new is here. It's a new perspective. It's a new way of living. And it's also a new way of looking at people. You look at people differently than you did before. People that you used to judge People that you used to look down on. People that you used to avoid. People that you used, used to think were no good. It gives you a new perspective. Everything about you, according to this passage, becomes new. You are a brand new person. And here's the good news. God didn't have to do it. God doesn't need reconciling. We are the one. That God took the whole initiative, that God loved so much that he came and died for us, so that through him, we could become new. And he has given us the great privilege through our new lives of showing others how they can be new as well. He's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. John Piper, who is a great speaker, author, pastor, it can be kind of difficult to, to read sometimes. And I've always said you can't just sit down and read John Piper for five minutes and come away enlightened. You have to really, really think about it. But John Piper uh, wanted to make things simple. So John Piper came up with a list of what it means to be in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? When somebody says to you, what does it mean to be in Christ? When you think about, if I am in Christ, I am a new creature, well, what does that mean? What does in Christ mean? He says this, In Christ, you were given grace 
before the world was created. In Christ, you were chosen by God before creation. In Christ, you are loved by God with an inseparable, inescapable love. In Christ, you were redeemed and forgiven for all your sins. In Christ, you are justified before God, and the righteousness of God in Christ is imputed to you. In Christ, you have become a new creation and a son of God. In Christ, you have been seated in the heavenly places, even while he lived on earth. In Christ, all of the promises of God are yes for you. In Christ, you are being sanctified and made holy. In Christ, everything you really need will be supplied. In Christ, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. In Christ, you will have eternal life. And in Christ, you will be raised from the dead at the coming of the Lord. That's what it means to be in Christ. To be a new creation. Everything about you has become new. But there's some implications for us. Because if we are really in Christ, if we have really been made new, then some changes are going to be evident in our lives. I like what Peter Wagner said, that when he refers to someone as in Christ, he said, I am referring to someone who is committed to the person of Christ, the body of Christ, and the work of Christ. If you are in Christ, you are committed to the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is not just your Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is your model. Jesus Christ sets the standard for the way that you live. If you are in Christ, you are committed to the body of Christ. That is his church. You're not just a sometime attender. You're not just someone who, who spectates. You are someone who gets in and does it, who does ministry, who gets involved, who gives faithfully. That's what it means to be in Christ. That the church is just not something you do if you have nothing else to do. You are part of a body, and the body supports one another, and the body helps one another, and each part of the body is essential to the health of the body. So if you are in Christ, you are not a part-time part of the body. To be in Christ means that you are a full-time, committed part of the body. To be in Christ also means that you are committed to the work of Christ. And the work of Christ is not the same as being a part of the church. It's involved in it. The church does the work of Christ. Through what you do through the church, you are doing the work of Christ. But the work of Christ also involves how you live every day, how you interact with people, how you help people. Everything you do, is the work of Christ. Your sole purpose for walking and getting up in the morning and, and breathing is to do the work of Christ. Those are the implications. Not that I have come to Jesus and I have been forgiven and man, John Piper's list of 13 benefits. Yes, I can get into that. That is wonderful. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to go sit home now and watch TV. But that's what people do. If you are in Christ, you are new. You are different. And your passion, your passion, 
passion becomes the person of Christ. Your passion becomes the body of Christ. Your passion becomes the work of Christ. If you are in Christ. That's the way it has to be. That's the way it has to be. Now, part of it's the church's fault. It is. We preach the gospel. We beg you to come down the aisle. You come down the aisle. We pray this prayer with you. We say you're a Christian. We baptize you, and we give you a list of five things to go home and do. You know, go home, read your Bible, go home and pray. Make sure you tell somebody about Jesus this week. Make sure you come back to church next week. Make sure you bring an offering with you. That's what we say. Now, all those things are fine. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But that's not what being in Christ means. It's a relationship. See, we, we, we tell people what they are, but we never tell them who they are. We say you're a Christian, but we never tell them that they're in a relationship with the Almighty God. That they have become His son. That they have become His child. And that involves responsibility. It is. It does. It does. And far too many people who proudly say they are Christians are not living in Christ. They're saved. They're going to heaven. Okay. But they're not living in Christ. They've never taken the relationship seriously. They've never taken the person seriously, the body seriously, the work seriously. It's just something they do. To be in Christ is a big responsibility. So I want to challenge you. Be in Christ. Realize what it means. And realize the implications for you. It's not a free pass to heaven. But rather it's a challenge to be a part of the greatest thing in the world. The kingdom of God. And to be a productive member of it. Let's pray.